This podcast is supported by the Icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai, one of America's leading research medical schools. Icon Mount Sinai is the academic arm of the eight-hospital Mount Sinai Health System in New York City. It's consistently among the top recipients of NIH funding. Researchers at Icon Mount Sinai have made breakthrough discoveries in many fields vital to advancing the health of patients, including cancer, COVID, and long COVID, cardiology, neuroscience, and artificial intelligence. The Icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai. We find a way. This week's episode is brought to you in part by the Nomis and Science Young Explorer Award. Are you doing excellent research that deserves recognition? The Nomis and Science Young Explorer Award recognizes bold young researchers who ask fundamental questions at the intersection of the life and social sciences. Researchers who take risks to address relevant and exciting questions with creative approaches, regardless of the research outcome. Submissions are due May 15th. Visit science.org slash nomis, that's N-O-M-I-S, to apply today. This is a science podcast for July 8th, 2022. I'm Sarah Crespi. Each week, we talk about the most interesting news and research from science and the sister journals. First up, staff news writer Daniel Clary. We discuss the future of fusion energy. Just as scientists get ready to turn on the first fusion reactor that makes more power than it uses, it looks like we might be running out of the fuel needed to run it. Next, researcher Sandeep Sukhtankar talks about setting up women's help desks inside police stations in North Central India to increase police responsiveness to gender-based violence. I could be accused of being a techno-optimist. Technology, in my opinion, has immensely changed the world around us for the better. One technology a lot of us optimists have been baking on is nuclear fusion as a clean energy source. It's got very little messy radiation and no fossil fuels required for the process. But it seems like fusion is really just one big test for us optimists. Dan Cleary is a staff writer for science, and he's here to take away more of our hopes. Hi, Dan. Hi. (laughs) Hello, destroyer of fusion optimism. How are you doing? Uh, Yeah, I'm sorry to be cast in that role. The issue we're going to focus on today, because there are actually several important factors that need to be considered for the future of fusion, but the main one we're going to talk about is not having enough fuel for fusion reactors, which I thought was hydrogen. And we have a lot of hydrogen here on Earth, right? That's true. But we need a particular sort of hydrogen. Hydrogen has two other isotopes, which have uh, more neutrons in the nucleus. Chemically, they're identical to hydrogen, but they're just heavier. And it's those two isotopes that you need as fuel for a fusion reaction. You need a mixture of deuterium and tritium. Deuterium, there's lots of it. The ocean has millions of tons of deuterium, so that's not a problem. Tritium doesn't exist on Earth. It has a 12-year half-life. There's a tiny bit in the upper atmosphere, but essentially it doesn't exist, so you have to make it. The problem is that the sources that uh, produce the tritium we have now are phasing out and are probably going to run out of tritium before fusion gets going. Uh, So there's no 
plants out there that just make tritium. It's more of a byproduct of something else that's going on. That's right. Yeah, it's made in uh, nuclear reactors, conventional nuclear reactors. There's a particular sort called can-do reactors, which were designed in Canada, and they use heavy water as a moderator. So heavy water has deuterium in it. And when that deuterium gets hit by neutrons from the fission reaction, it converts some of it into tritium. And that can be dangerous if it builds up in the reactor. So operators of can-do reactors have to remove it and they sell it because it's useful for a few applications, not many. Things like luminous signs and watch dials that glow in the dark. Those must be expensive watches. <laughs> you don't need much of it, but uh, it is expensive stuff. To buy it from Canada, you need $30,000 per gram. Right. And it lasts for 12 and a half years, or half of it lasts for 12 and a half years. Exactly. So as soon as you bought it, it starts decaying away. There are big fusion reactors that are close to turning on. Did they not know that the fuel was going away? They did know, but fusion is famous for its delays. Scientists have been working on it for 60, 70 years and keep on predicting that it's going to get there soon. The biggest reactor, the one that's going to actually start producing more energy than it takes to run it, is called ITER and is nearly completed. It was meant to be running already, you know, a decade ago. And people thought they had time before tritium supplies run out. But because of the delay, the global inventory of available tritium is starting to decay away. You know, it was increasing all the time. But this decade, about half of the can-do reactors in Canada are going to be retired because they've come to the end of their working lives. And so the rate at which it decays or is sold for those various uses is going to be bigger than the supply of tritium. So the stockpile is going to go down. At the moment, the worldwide stockpile is only about 25 kilograms. 25 kilograms isn't a lot. No. But you could start up fusion reactors with that amount. But by the time ITER gets operating, which is going to be in 2035, there's going to be even less. And by the time it finishes, when the next reactors come along, the ones that are actually going to generate electricity, there may be virtually nothing left. But isn't ITER going to make tritium? I mean, isn't that part of the positive feelings people have about fusion is that it also makes the fuel that it needs? Yes, that's the long-term plan. Fusion reactors will breed their own tritium. So if you put lithium metal around the reactor, the lithium absorbs the neutrons that are produced in fusion reactors, and that creates more tritium. But to do that, you need your fusion reactor to be running. And in the 2050s, when we hope there will be fusion reactors being built to generate electricity, there may be no tritium left to get them started. I think this is another important point that you make in your story, which is that a fusion reactor needs a certain amount of starting material to get up and running, and then it can make some fuel for itself. But you might have to turn your reactor on and off a lot, especially in the beginning to fix problems, you know, so you might end up with a huge startup cost that doesn't really go away for the first few years. 
That's right. You know, as well as a startup inventory, you need the reactor to be self-sustaining. So it needs to produce more tritium than it needs while it's actually running. Anytime you stop, your tritium fuel is decaying away, but you're not producing any more. So if you leave it too long, you might end up in a situation where you haven't got enough to start up again. Do we know that enough tritium in optimal conditions would be created by an operating fusion reactor of the type we've been talking about? That also isn't certain. People have been always reassured by the fact that a fusion reactor can breed its own fuel. But one of the problems is that every fusion reaction produces a single neutron, and that single neutron can produce a single atom of tritium but you're going to lose some of those neutrons. So strictly speaking, you can never produce as much tritium as you're burning in the reactor. So what they use is a material called a neutron multiplier, which if it gets hit by a neutron, it produces two neutrons. That way you can build up an excess. The problem is that there's a limit to how much you can push that technology. And the models say you can just about make enough tritium with a neutron multiplier and a blanket of lithium around the reactor. But the thing is, no one has ever tested it. A small-scale test will be done on ITER, but the first full-scale reactor that will try to do this and make its own tritium will be the ones, the sort of prototype reactors that come after ITER. And that's a long way in the future, and a lot is riding on it. We have to build fission reactors to make tritium to feed fusion reactors? (laughs) That's what some people think we may have to do, but whether anyone is prepared to do that is an unknown. Because at the moment, people are still unsure whether fusion is going to work. So they're not going to spend a fortune building fission reactors to provide fuel for future reactors they don't even know are going to work yet. All right, Dan. So we're bringing this up not because someone just shut the door on Eater, locked it and walked away and said no more. There's still people trying to come up with solutions for this problem. What kinds of approaches are they using to either move away from tritium as a fuel or get a better supply? There's various approaches people are trying. Uh, The people that are designing reactors that are going to come after Eater are trying to redesign it so that it needs less to get started with. And that way, there's more to go around of this limited supply. But a few companies are also investigating types of fusion that use different fuels. Now, there are a variety of fuels you could use, but most of them require even higher temperatures than using deuterium and tritium. And deuterium and tritium requires 150 million degrees centigrade, so that's pretty hot. Other fuels require even higher temperatures than that. You know, one fuel that is popular, because it would be nice and simple, is protons, normal hydrogen, and boron. And both of these are easily obtainable but you would require a reaction operating at a billion degrees centigrade. Whether that's even possible, we don't know yet, but some people think it might be achievable. Okay, so those are a couple routes to maybe salvaging fusion in the future, but why are people putting so much into fusion? It does seem like there've been a lot of hurdles. Should we turn our attention to other energy sources at this point and just say, okay, fusion was a nice hope, but 
maybe there's something else we should be putting our efforts into? Yeah, well, that's the big question. Renewable energies like wind and solar, they're fantastic, but they're intermittent. And sometimes the sun doesn't shine and the wind doesn't blow. And so you need what's called baseload power to cover the background. Now, is battery technology what people are hoping will kind of fill that in? Maybe it will. People are working on that very uh, heavily, but nobody knows who's going to win this race. And fusion has the promise of producing just tons of energy. If we can get it to work, it could just replace every fission power station and coal power station and gas power station. But whether it'll ever get there, we don't know. But if it does, if it works, it would be fantastic. Stop stoking optimism. (laughs) (laughs) So the first time you and I talked about fusion, you said maybe we need to look further afield for our next power source. What are some of the kind of the more far out examples we could talk about? One that people are starting to get interested in again, which sounds very science fiction-y, is having um, orbiting solar power stations. So you would have solar arrays in orbit, so they could be as large as you like, and then they would beam energy down to Earth. And that has always been dismissed because of the cost of getting anything hefty into orbit. It's very, very expensive. But companies like SpaceX are showing that you can put a lot of stuff into orbit quite cheaply. That has made advocates of space solar power start to get interested again. And how would the power get down to Earth and not cook us? Yeah, you would beam it, uh, I think, as a microwave energy to a, uh, a base station on the ground, which sounds a bit scary. But if you choose the right frequency, it wouldn't do any harm to anything that happened to fly through the beam. And it also has the benefit that you could direct it wherever it's needed. So say there was an emergency, you know, a natural disaster in a certain part of the world, you could shift over a power station above it and beam down power as long as there is a receiver on the ground to receive it. Are you going to talk about Dyson Sphere next? (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) that's really into science fiction. All right. Thank you so much, Dan. Okay, my pleasure. Daniel Clary is a staff writer for science. This article originally appeared at the end of June in the print magazine, but you can find a link to it at science.org slash podcast. Stay tuned for my chat with Sandeep Sukhankar about battling gender-based violence by setting up women's help desks inside police stations in North Central India. This week's episode is brought to you in part by the Eppendorf and Science Prize for Neurobiology. Are you or one of your colleagues doing great neuroscience? If so, then we encourage you to apply for the prestigious Eppendorf and Science Prize for Neurobiology, an international prize which honors young scientists for outstanding neurobiological research based on methods of molecular, cellular, systems, or organismic biology. Submissions are due June 15th. Visit science.org slash Eppendorf to apply today. Gender-based violence, sometimes called violence against women and girls, is a global problem. Around the world, 30% of women are subjected to physical and or sexual intimate partner violence, non-partner sexual violence, or both. This week in science, Sandeep Sukhankar 
wrote about a project in north central India to look at how intervention at the level of the police station can influence these staggering numbers. Hi, Sandeep. Hi, Sarah. This is a complex issue, and there are a lot of places where interventions could take place, could happen. What part of the problem of gender-based violence were you trying to address with this study? So the problem that we were trying to address with this study is underreporting and specifically under-registration of crimes against women. This is actually a global problem in the U.S. or even places like Sweden. Crimes against women are underreported. In India, though, this is a really, really, really big issue. And there's a lot of barriers for women who are victims to report the crime to the police and then have the police register those cases so that they can access the justice system. What are some of the barriers in India to reporting and then having those crimes registered? Societal pressures are one of the biggest issues. This is a a patriarchal society. The police themselves are patriarchal in the sense that only 7% of the police force is women. And then in terms of registering crimes, people sometimes equate registration of crimes with crime rates. So if you register crimes, it might make you look bad because it might seem that crime rates are going up. But given the huge gap between actual crime rates and crime rates registered, some estimates suggest that 95, 99% of crimes that actually happen go underreported and underregistered. It's very, very unlikely that an extra case registered is really reflecting more actual crime taking place. And how is this specific for gender? Like, is there anything that pushes back on registration because of the fact that women are being attacked or or harmed in some way? One of the issues is that the police are dismissive of women and they don't believe them. Again, not an India-specific issue, but probably something that's perhaps a little bit more severe in India. And there is this narrative that women who are coming to register cases are filing false cases. In our data, as well as other independent data, 40% of the police say that women that come to report generally tend to be filing false cases. It sounds like we know that the numbers are higher, that these crimes are happening, but we're not getting that information because the cases are being reported to the police and then reported there. Why is it important that they record them and report them or register them? Because without registering the case, you simply don't have access to the justice system. Without having a case registered, whether it's a criminal case or a civil case, you cannot bring it to a court. And of course, there's a lot of work, including by sociologists, that suggests that if there are no consequences, then there is going to be this culture of impunity. You can get away with it. Again, not specific to India, but a big problem. Can you walk us through what happens when a woman comes into a police station and wants to report something? When she comes into a police station, there's a number of things that the police officer can do. They could file a civil case of domestic violence, which is called a domestic incident report. They could file a criminal case, which is called a first information report or FIR. And that has to be filed under a specific Indian penal code. They could file a non-cognizable report, which basically 
it means nothing. They don't really have to do anything. Or of course, they could do nothing. So those are the options that are on the table. And so the most likely thing to happen is they do nothing. Exactly. That's kind of the status quo. The senior levels of the police especially are aware of this issue. One thing that I should mention before we go ahead is the severe sort of resource constraints. So, of course, police may not want to file because of the societal norms, because of their own beliefs, because of the not wanting to look bad by making it look like crime rates are being registered. But another big issue is resource constraints, really. The police uh, really have to do so much in India. They don't have a lot of resources thinking about even weapons or petrol to to drive their cars around. All of these a huge issue. Taking all this into account, the attitudes of the people, the resources available to them, you went to the level of the police station and asked to make a change there to see if you could move the dial on registering these cases of gender-based violence. What exactly did you change for the study? The intervention had four components. The first simple thing was just some private physical space. It could be just a cubicle. It could be a room in better resource places where women could report sometimes sensitive details of crimes that they may have suffered without having the whole police station listen in. So that was number one. Number two was standard operating procedures and training on these standard operating procedures. Part of that was just checklist. Okay, what do you do? What kind of questions do you need to ask? Where can you get the answers to the questions that you might have? One of the issues was the police don't know how which Indian penal code to file the case under. So training on that. Part three was community outreach, which is very straightforward. Just letting people know that, hey, we have this resource. Please come. And part four, which we separately randomized, was whether the officer who was assigned to the help desk was male or female. The fourth one we randomized because even the senior officers, the senior female officers who were supporting the study from the very beginning, were not sure whether having women at the front lines would help or not. We are going to refer to these as women's help desks. Is that right? Exactly. Okay, so this is a basically putting in place a mechanism that's easily recognizable to deal with crimes against women, saying here in the police station, we know this happens. And when people come in, we know what to do with them. How did you measure change in these different arms of your interventions? We had three simple arms, one where there was a women's help desk set up. And we didn't specifically say whether a man or a woman had to run that help desk. A second arm where we had the three components of the help desk and a female officer assigned to run that help desk. And then the third group was, of course, our control group. This was spread across 180 police stations with roughly equal numbers in each group. And these 180 police stations serve about 23 million people. So it's a very large-scale intervention. Before your intervention, the numbers on registered crimes, like the ones we've been talking about, what were those numbers like? In terms of the civil cases, registration was zero. Not many police really knew how to do it. It's a little bit complicated because it requires interagency coordination. So there, that was basically zero. And in terms of the FIRs or the criminal cases, this was about four cases per 
police station per month. Now, remember that, that each police station is, is serving about 130,000 people. So this is uh, very small. So also basically zero. <laughs> basically, exactly. Okay, so let's see what happened after you let this play out for a certain amount of time. The number of domestic incident reports, the civil cases shot up across the board, across the two groups. There's not much difference in the numbers between the two groups. But comparing those two groups to the control group, there's a a huge increase. It's about a 1,500% increase in number of cases reported. Again, the raw numbers are not that large, about 1.5 cases per police station per month. But overall, that adds up to nearly 2,000 more cases registered. It's so large that you can see this effect in the all India figures. The state that we're working on was responsible for about 40% of DIRs filed across the country. That is a big difference. But again, the scale is one or two women per police station in a month. Sure. And what does it mean exactly for a woman to go down this path, the civil case? What happens? This allows the woman to access resources. This includes a legal help, potentially a little bit of financial help. Most importantly, also can include shelter. So you can get somewhere to stay that's safe. So without these DIRs, obviously you could get help from informal sources, but the formal resources of the state really open up once you have these cases filed. So we've been talking about the civil, a little bit of movement on those numbers. What about criminal cases being brought? If you just look at overall whether a police station was treated or not, it looks like the FIRs also increased by 14%, about 4,000 more cases over the course of the 10, 11 months. That, though, is very interesting because if you break it down now, if you look at separately the group that was assigned the woman officer to run the help desk, all the action is coming from that group. And of course, because this was separately randomized and was pre-registered that we would look at these separately, we have confidence we can simply just look at these differences and see that the women who are assigned to the help desk are really making a big difference. Do you have some thoughts on why that was the case, why there was this difference? One thing that seemed to change in terms of attitudes of female officers. In fact, this is the only thing that changed in terms of attitudes of police officers really anywhere. If you compare women officers who got training and were in the treated police stations, they are much less likely to say that women generally file false cases when you compare them to women officers in the control police stations. We've seen this change in a very specific set of numbers, registration of cases numbers. Is there a difference in how many of these kinds of crimes are committed? Are there more people reporting? Are there more people being arrested, going to jail? Is that something you could see happening or not happening? We checked for all of these. And what we found is that there is absolutely no increase in the number of women who are coming to the police station. And that's not surprising because it turns out that the outreach was not that widespread. Only 10% of women had ever heard of this intervention. That was from our citizen survey. And then from the same broad representative citizen survey, we see absolutely no changes in actual crime rates, which is, again, really not that surprising because why would this sort of small intervention that most people hadn't heard about affect actual crime rates at all? 
And then in terms of the arrests and what happens in the future, 98, 99% of cases that are registered actually go to court. Now, what happens after that, we don't really know. We didn't track individual cases. Do you see scaling it up as you intended when you did this as an early study? Do you see that that might have overflow effects to these other areas that we're interested in? I think so. I think in the future, once we start seeing that more of these cases are, are actually being registered, more women feel that they will be listened to. There is some hope that we, we start to change things, even in very, very, very small increments. But that's the hope. And the police definitely seem to think so. So Partly based on the results of the study, they've scaled up the intervention to 700 police stations. So basically all of the state. One thing I was wondering as I was reading this is that police are often involved after the crime and they're not necessarily best placed to stop these crimes before they happen. Are there other non-state interventions that might support these efforts going forward? There's interesting interventions, in, in fact, by my JPAL colleague Seema Jaya Chandran and her co-authors, where they ran an intervention in schools in, I believe it was Haryana, which is a northern state, which you know has some of the worst gender inequality in, in India, where they tried to get girls and boys to talk about some of these attitudes. I think they saw a lot of promise. Again, that intervention is also being scaled up across the state. So I think I think some of those interventions have a lot of potential. In other countries, and even in India, there are actually separate police stations for women, as opposed to this help desk within the police station. Why did you decide to look at, you know, having it inside the police station instead of separate? All papers that look at this find some displacement of registration of cases from the regular police stations to the all-women's police stations. So it's not that the women's police stations are suddenly increasing registration of a lot more cases. What just happens is that when women go to now a regular police station, they're told, oh, this is the men's police station. You have to go to the women's police station. Oh, no. Which is terrible because... These all-women's police stations are very scarce. And so that's kind of one end of the spectrum where you have this 100% segregation. Mm -hmm. And then the other side of the spectrum could be like 100% integration, where you really push to have more female police officers and more officials at every level. Do you see what you did here as something kind of in between? Yeah, I think that's a fair characterization. We tried to get the police to make sure that cases are not segregated too much by trying to do the training at the police station level itself with everybody in the police station. So it's not just the officers who are going to be sitting at the help desk. And that included gender sensitization training. But again, we don't necessarily see this as fully integrated. Where we do see the interesting policy implications is that many states in India have now a rule that says that 30% of all new recruits have to be women. And so what our intervention suggests is that, look, you really shouldn't be putting them in police headquarters, pushing paper, really, but they can make a big difference at the front lines. All right. Thank you so much, Sandeep. Thanks, Sarah. Sandeep Sukhankar is an associate professor in the Department of Economics at the University of Virginia. And that concludes this edition of the Science Podcast. If you have any comments or suggestions, 
write to us at sciencepodcast at aaas.org. You can listen to the show on the science website at science.org slash podcast or search for Science Magazine on any podcasting app. This show was edited and produced by Sarah Crespi with production help from Podigy and Megan Cantwell. Transcripts are by Scribby. Jeffrey Cook composed the music. On behalf of Science Magazine and its publisher, AAAS, thanks for joining us.